Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, June 14th, 2020, we continue our new series titled, The Parables. Today's sermon, The Cost of Following Jesus, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Enjoy. Open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Now, I want to just tell you, as we start all this, that Luke chapter 14 is a call to follow Jesus 24-7. It is a call to give him everything. And everything does not mean most of my life. It does not mean 50% of my love or 75% of, of my love or, I mean, that's not enough. Boy, to hear words like that too, that's just, I mean, that's, those are hard words to hear. He wants more? Yeah. This is a call this morning to relinquish or turn over control of every single thing in your life to him. Most believers would say they've probably done that. Oh, yeah, I've, I've given the Lord everything. But the truth is, me included, when we begin to look at our lives, is that really true? If I stop and I look at my time, is Jesus really the Lord over my time? I mean, do I make time to put a little bit of time aside for him, and, or is he really in control of that? Or what about my, my talents, my abilities, or even my capabilities? I mean, have I turned them over to the Lord? Am I really in pursuit of building the kingdom? Or my treasure? Oh, Bob, don't go there, okay? Don't. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times, how many books I've read said, hey, you know, if you really want to build a church, just don't talk about money. I want to encourage you, then we'd never build a church. Because if Jesus isn't the Lord over every single area of my life, including my wallet, he's not Lord. Don't kid yourself. You're playing a religious game. The reality is, is that lordship means in my life that he takes control over every single thing there is, and at times that's really, it's uncomfortable. Because it costs something, it costs to follow Christ. As Christians, we don't really want to acknowledge that. We, we want it to be the opposite way, and yet it's not. I think, you know, Martin Luther King said it so well. He said, Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown that we wear. To be a Christian, one must take up his cross with all of its difficulties and agonizing and tragedy-packed content and carry it until that very cross leaves its marks upon us. You catch that last line there? Until the cross leaves its marks upon us. I mean, think about it. When you help somebody move something, you pick something up and you maybe carry it out to the garage and you pick up something big and, and it gets into your arms and, and when you put it down, you've got these lines. That's the way the cross ought to be in our life all the time. The marks that something has happened in our life. To follow Christ means that I have to carry the cross and if I don't have the lines of the cross in my life, according to verse 27 in the passage we're looking at today, I'm not carrying it. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you, when you stop and you begin to look at this passage and as we go through it, this is really not a difficult passage to understand. 
but it's a very difficult passage to swallow. It all starts off in chapter 14 in verse one. If you've got your Bible there, look at, it starts off here with the word one Sabbath. That's an interesting way of starting off a, a whole chapter or a paragraph here. One Sabbath. The reason why he, that, uh, that's an interesting thing, why Luke would title it that, is one Sabbath here, is because typically when Jesus had a point of contention with the Pharisees and the scribes, it always had to do with what happened on the Sabbath. He would always challenge their, their sort of rules about the Sabbath. You couldn't do this and you couldn't do that. And Jesus was really trying to help them see that this is not about what you do on the Sabbath. It's about you following me and serving me. He says one Sabbath he goes and he's, he goes to the home of a ruler of the Pharisees. This would have been a local ruler, not a Jerusalem ruler. And he clearly knows here from verse one that they are watching him really closely. Verse two, it says, and behold, there was a man before him who had, been, who had dropsy. So the Pharisees at this point invite another person to come to this dinner besides Jesus, and the guy has dropsy. Now, I really didn't know what dropsy was beforehand, so I had to go back and, and kind of study this a little bit. Dropsy is an inflammation that comes, and it's usually or typically linked to like a congestive heart failure or a cirrhosis of the liver. Verse three Luke here is going to make it seem as though that Jesus understands that he is being set up because verse 3 says, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees. Jesus responded. Well, what did he respond to? Well, clearly, there's a perceived challenge that is before them. Verse 4 then tells us that Jesus heals the man right there on the Sabbath, right in front of the leaders. Now, then Jesus will start off and he'll tell two parables. The first one there in verse seven starts off and, and basically Jesus confronts this group of people's desire and to be exalted, that they would come into this dinner party and they would come in and immediately take the best seat, the exalted seat, sort of the seat of honor. And Jesus tells them the same thing that, that, uh, that Paul would tell us in Philippians chapter two, that don't do that. Don't think about exalting yourself first, but let someone else, you know, have that seat, you know? I mean, you don't, you don't want to take that best spot. Be humble. Then you get to verse 12, he's going to tell another parable. In this parable, he tells about a man who prepares this great feast. And after he's prepared this great feast and he's, he's got all the food and everything and he's made, it's just going to be this amazing situation there. He invites all these people, but the people make excuses for why they can't come. And that takes us to our passage this morning, starting at verse 25 through verse 33, because Jesus will urge people to, to carefully consider the cost of following. And that's not just something they needed to do, it's something that we should be doing as well. So let's pick up the text right there, follow along as they read. Starting in verse 25, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
For which of you desire to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other was yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what Jesus is going to tell us here is there are four things that go with following him. The first thing you're going to see here in verses 25 and 26 is Jesus is going to take, clearly tell us here that we have to love him the most. Now, go back to verse 25 here because I want to be clear here that he's not just talking to 12 guys. Verse 25 says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them. He's talking to the crowd of people. Sometimes we think, well, there's another level here that, that uh, he's talking to, and I'm, you know, I'm just not there yet. No, he's talking to everyone. You get to verse 26, and he will tell us that we have to love him much more than we love anyone else. In fact, he'll even use the word, sort of a, a really difficult word here, the word hate. Now, let me be really clear here. What he's not saying is you're actually supposed to hate your relatives and your family. That would actually be going against everything you could possibly, everything he's ever taught. You know, when when you think of the word hate, we tend to think of hostility in our minds towards someone that we, you know, I mean, there's anger that rises up. He's not talking about that. Jesus, the core of his teaching was love. In fact, he even told us that we're supposed to love our enemies. So what's he saying? Well, the the way the language is used here uh, tells me that the word is probably better used like this, like comparison. And that was kind of common in, in Semitic languages. For example, Genesis chapter 29 is the story of Jacob. Now, if you remember in our series in Genesis, you remember that Jacob has two wives, Rachel and Leah. The reason why he has two wives is because his father-in-law, Laban, tricked him on his wedding night. Okay, that put him in a weird spot. I guess it would have been nice at that point to be able to say that he loved them both the same, but he didn't. He had put all of his preparation into this thing that he was going to have this relationship, this marriage, you know, to, to, to Rachel, But then Leah gets moved into the spot and tricks him there. And so now he's married, you know, to both of them. And so the the, the passage here will tell us that the Lord saw that Leah was hated. But when you go through and you begin to read through the passage, what the passage tells you in Genesis 29, verse 30, is that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. He still loved her. It just wasn't on the same level. It's an issue of comparison. What Jesus is saying is by way of comparison, we are to love him much more than we love anyone or anything else. In other words, my commitment cannot be, well, you know what? My family and Jesus are right here. That presents a problem between you and him. And by the way, I love my family, so it, don't, please don't think that I'm downplaying that. 
We are to choose him. We are to prefer him. We are to put him in a spot where we put him supremely above all things in my life, that he becomes the priority. I mean, that's one of the reasons why when we stop and have a service like this and we have a time where, you know, we're singing and the words are on the screen, it's so important that I remind myself what he has done for me and I get a chance to worship him. No one should be at this level. In effect, what Jesus is doing is he's establishing a whole new level of love that he expects from us. Do I love my family? Absolutely. Do I love my wife? Absolutely. I want you to love me even more. You say, well, that's really tough to do. Of course it is. It's meant to be tough. It's not meant to be easy. He even takes it to a a step beyond that. He says, you can't even love yourself more than that. You cannot put yourself even before love of God and love of other people. Now, I'll be honest with you. In today's world, that's really difficult words because we sort of live in one of those, you know, societies now where it's a love yourself first society. You know, I mean, that's the world we live in today. You, You participate, you get a trophy. Everybody, you know, is a winner. And love yourself more than everybody else so you can find your way able to love other people. No. That's not the message that Jesus is giving here. You know what's interesting is when you really consider what Jesus is saying and you sort of lay it out next to American Christianity or Western Christianity, it's, it's really kind of a, a difficult picture to get because in, in American Christianity, what we want is we want Jesus to forgive us and love us and then accept us, right? I mean, that's what we, we, we want from him. That's, that's really all we want to. And so we want Jesus to come to us and say, hey, look, I got something great for you. I'm gonna forgive you, and I'm, I'm gonna adopt you into my family. I'm gonna give you abundant life. So good. Now, in about two years, I'm gonna come back to you, and I'm gonna say, hey, there's a little bit more. I'd like you to be obedient and sacrificial, and I'd like you to, you know, kind of take this next level spiritually. Jesus doesn't say that. This big crowd of people are walking behind him. He had every opportunity to say, look, come and believe in me, and then later on we'll talk about discipleship. And basically what he says is, look, you want to come follow me? If you don't love me the the most, you're not following These are hard words. That's not an easy message. It's not a message that most people want. There's a story in, in Luke chapter 18, verses 28 through 30, where there's this, this rich young ruler, and this guy comes to Jesus, and, and he comes and he says, look, hey, I, you know, Lord, I've done some good things. I've made some sacrifices. I have kept the rules and everything. Is there anything else that I really need to do? And Jesus, because he's God, looks right at him, looks right into his heart, knows exactly what the issue is between, you know, him loving him the most and him loving something else the most. And he says, okay, take everything that you have, give it away, and then come and follow me. Because Jesus knew that was the issue with this guy. He was very rich. And he could not lay that aside. He could not put anything in front of the riches there. And he left. 
Jesus has that ability to see into our hearts, to call us to something, to the area specifically, maybe even that I, I don't want to give up. How do we possibly love him the most? There's a fourth century theologian named Augustine that wrote a, a, a book. It was, I don't even know if it was a book when he first wrote it. He probably wrote it more like a, a, a sort of a, a, something he was keeping track of for his own self, but it was called Confessions. And in this book, he says, he finally comes to the conclusion that the essence of transformation in my life requires that the loves of my life be rightly ordered. Over a couple of year period, he basically comes back and he says, the loves of my life, if I'm going to be changed, if I'm going to truly be transformed, the loves of my life have to rightly be ordered. Translated means not everything is the same. I can't say, well, I love this and I love this and they're just all even. I'm sorry, I just really love my family a whole lot. No, the loves of my life have to be rightly ordered carefully, clearly, and nothing comes before Jesus. Being who Jesus wants me to be just simply doesn't happen by you know, sheer willpower or hard work or by sacrifice. It happens when we love him the most. And when that happens, I simply obey. Now, there's a second thing that Jesus is gonna say here in verse 27. He says that we have to make sacrifices. Look at verse 27. It says, and whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know, when Jesus says we have to bear your own cross, I'll be honest with you, it doesn't sound all that enjoyable. In fact, it sounds the opposite of what most of us want. Again, we want acceptance and we want forgiveness and we want hope for the future and we want a life that's, that's safe and, and comfortable and rewarding and assured and a life that we can feel blessed with and things and we want that assurance that we're not going to hell, assurance that we are going to heaven. That's what we want. And yet the truth is following Christ is not that easy all the time. I mean, certainly your enemy, the devil doesn't want that to happen. The world doesn't want it to happen. Sometimes our, even our own flesh doesn't want it to happen. So what does Jesus mean when he says, take up your cross? Well, notice here, first of all, what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, take up my teachings. Because a lot of people think like, well, you know what, I can sort of live any way I really want to as long as I understand what he's really saying. You know, if I really get this teachings, you know, then I, I got it. And that's not what he's saying. Others will say, well, maybe it just means his example. I just need to do more really good things. I mean, I need to help more people. And that's not what he's saying either. He says cross. In fact, in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says, take up your cross daily. What does he mean? I think it means to take your eyes off of you and to look up to him. Paul in Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 says, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on this earth. 
Practically speaking for me, what it means is I get up every single morning or I ought to get up every single morning and remind myself whose I am and what he is calling me to do and why he has even left me here on this earth. To take up my cross every day means I can't be you do you. By the way, Jesus is not asking us to to do something he's not willing to do. Luke chapter 22 is this amazing picture of Jesus in the garden praying off just a little bit from the rest of his disciples. As he begins to pray, literally the passage says that he began to sweat what was like drops of blood come down. I mean, the stress was so amazingly tough at that point. And he prays, Father, if there's another way, But then he quickly says, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Practically speaking, carrying the cross for you and for me probably looks at, really what it probably means is that you and I begin need to think and act missionally. Now let me explain what I mean by that. If we're going to live missionally, it means that you and I have to begin to to sort of see all of life as the mission that I am on for Jesus. And that means I'm gonna carry my cross through all of it. For example, you have a job, wonderful. Job is is a way that we can be blessed and we can make money and pay the bills and do all these things like that. But really the reason why you have a job and the skills you have is because God is gonna place you someplace because you're going to have an influence on other people and that money that you're going to make there and earn it's going to pay your bills and it's going to be a blessing to you in many ways but it also allows you to do things ministry wise that would not happen without that you have a job because it's the missional calling of your life you have a home not because you know you love that neighborhood so much and you just like the style of the houses or that was a really good builder or, or whatever the case may be. You live in a neighborhood because the mission that God has you on is to reach all those neighbors that also live in the same neighborhood. Because for whatever reason, God has sort of packed you in together and this is your opportunity to see this is my mission field. Your kids go to a school because, you know, it's there at that school that they're going to learn some really important things and help them advance into life. That's all great and everything, but the truth is, is that God has you there for more than just that. He has you there because this is an opportunity for you to reach out to those parents that are also scared about parenting, and they're also struggling in their marriage, and they're also trying to figure out all these other things like that, but you're going to be there because you're going to bring the love of Jesus Christ into a group of people that never heard. Same thing for you students. Why does God put you at the school that you're in? Because he gives you an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. That's missional living. Missional living means you're carrying your cross every single day through every single thing that there is. Well, you don't understand. I'm playing on a club team. That's your mission field. Well, I go to the, you know, this, you know, society thing. Well, that's your mission field. All of them are. Now, there's a third thing he will say here in verses 28 through 32, and he's going to tell them that we need to consider the cost. Look what he says, verse 28. 
For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet the one who comes against him with 20,000, and if not, while the other is a great way off, sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, what Jesus is basically saying is when he calls us to follow him, he's calling us to this lifetime version of that kid's game. Remember the kid's game, follow the leader? Whatever the leader does, you do. He's calling us to a lifetime version of that, but here's what he doesn't want. He doesn't want you to go, hey, Jesus is calling you to come and follow him, and you just blindly go, I'm in. What he really wants you to do is go, okay. I recognize what you're asking in my life. You're asking that the loves of my life be reordered and you're at the top. That no one else comes near. Verse 28, no one starts a building project without first thinking it through. Verses 29 through 30, if you stop, then, you know, if you start, then stop, you'll be mocked as a quitter. Verses 31 through 32, the illustration of going out to battle, the opposing army is going to crush you, and so you make a good decision to sign a peace tree. Picturesque things. You know, I read that the cost of an excursion to the top of Mount Everest now costs somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter of a million dollars up to $250,000, depending upon the level of, of comfort that you'd really like in all of that. If you think through the transportation, the provision, the guides, the permits, the insurance, the helicopter rides, the flying in of food, oxygen, all of those things, I mean, it is a lot of money. But the truth is, I mean, if you think about it, Everest would be like the excursion of a lifetime, wouldn't it? I mean, for a moment in time, you'd be able to rise up on top of this thing and be higher than any other person there is. I mean, that would be pretty amazing. So imagine you decide that you're willing to make this sacrifice, and so you go and, and you pay the money and you get the schedule and that you never train. You don't do any climbs. You don't lift weights, you don't run, you don't exercise, you don't even climb camelback. And then one day you get on a plane and you fly and head towards Everest. Will you ever get to the top of Everest? There is zero chance that you would ever do that. You will have wasted all of your money and all of your time and everyone will have seen it. And so it is with following Jesus. This is the greatest adventure in all of the universe. The costliest adventure of all of the universe. Because God sent his only son to come to this earth and die on a cross to give each of us a chance to walk with him and to serve him and to represent him and to carry his name And so the creator of the whole universe, the creator of all these things, is calling us into his family, and he's calling us into his service. And he's asking us to consider 
the cost. That means I have to stop and ask, God, does this honor you? Is this what you want? Now, there's a fourth thing here. The final thing is that we have to give him everything. Look at verse 33. And so therefore, as a result of of considering all this cost, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. To renounce something is to say that it is not yours any longer. In verse 33, Jesus is asking us, he's telling us that is exactly what we have to do. I want to be clear here. He is not asking me to make a sacrifice. That's not what he's asking. He's asking me for a fundamental change of ownership in my life. That means I have to look at everything that I have and realize that it's not mine. I'm a, I'm a caretaker of it. I'm a steward of it. The house that I call mine, it's his. The car or the cars that we have, they're his. The boat, oh, Bob, don't go there. The boat is his. The 401K is his. I mean, if there's anything outside of the lordship of Christ, then he's not the Lord. To follow Christ is to realize that I am no longer my own and everything in my possession is no longer mine. Even to the point that I'm not even to be an independent thinker apart from Christ. I am a servant, first and foremost, period. No matter what I do, I, God has called me to be a servant. You know, I'll be honest with you, we don't like that in the Western culture. We love independence. We want to have say over our own life. We want to have a personal sense of sovereignty. The problem is there's only one that's really sovereign. And it's not us. The question is, is it worth it? Remember the story I told you earlier from Luke chapter 18 where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and Jesus is able to look right into his heart and he sees the issue, the one issue is the money and the things and the stuff like that and he tells him, get rid of it and come and follow me. And then Jesus makes this statement when the guy leaves. He says, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And Peter, man, God love him. Open his mouth, foot inserted, you know, the whole bit. I, I, I love this guy. He, Peter says, well, see, we've left our homes and followed you. Jesus' answer in verse 29, he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house and wife and brothers or parents and children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. It's worth it. The king of the universe is just telling you it's worth it. Look, Jesus told two stories, short little parables, three verses all together in Matthew chapter 13, very picturesque little parables that really... uh, portray how you and I are supposed to respond to Jesus in that call on our life. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven 
is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he covered up and then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and he sold all that he has to buy it. I want that to be me. Let me ask you a question. Do you love Jesus enough to do whatever he's asking you to do? To give whatever he's asking you to do? Or do the loves of your life need to be reordered? Do we need to honestly say as, as, as you know, as, as so many believers that have come before us do I really love him the most? Do I really? Would you stop and pray with me for a minute? Appreciate just for a second you would um, focus in on you for a minute and nobody else. There's nothing magical about you closing your eyes, but it will allow you to focus on you for a second. In your heart of hearts, is there anything between you and God? Just as the man in Luke 18, Jesus was able to look into his heart and remove the one thing that was between, is there anything he needs to remove in you? Would you let him do that? Would you willingly, without him having to force the issue, turn everything over to him? Father, would you move in our hearts in such a way that we honor you with all that we say and do, Lord. Lord, I love you. I believe I'm in a room full of people that love you. We just want to make sure that we love you the most. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. May the God who made you, who sacrificed for you, who provides for you every day, who has adopted you into his family by faith, who is calling you to serve him, may he truly be the one that you love the most. God bless you all. Love you all.